This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Good morning, agents. Welcome to The Briefing Room here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the Showtime series Homeland. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my executive co-director, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. How are you doing, Charlie? Caught any terrorists lately? No, I'm actually helping one supposed terrorist hide out, and uh, I'm getting grilled pretty hard uh, by Congress right now, so not a lot of fun. Have you had sexual relations with this terrorist? I read it in the newspaper the other day. I'd, I'd rather not say. That's just okay. a little too much information. All right. Well, this is uh, Film Geek Radio's podcast devoted exclusively to the Showtime series Homeland. We will be going episode by episode through season three of the show. Today we are discussing the season three premiere of Homeland. The episode is titled Tin Man is Down. It was written by Alex Gonza and Barbara Hall, and it was directed by Leslie Linka Gladder. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you haven't seen this episode of the show, you should go away, catch up on Homeland, and then come back. Charlie, why don't you remind our listeners what happened on this episode? Just give us the quick little synopsis. This is the official Showtime uh, synopsis. Alleged Langley bomber Nick Brody remains at large. Saul plots a risky counterstrike on the terrorists connected to the bombing. Carrie becomes the focus of a hostile Senate investigation. Humiliated and abandoned by the Marine Corps, the Brody family struggles to cope with Dana's destructive behavior. All right, before we dive into things, here's a clip. What time is it scheduled to start? Ten minutes ago. I should be there myself, sitting right beside her. No, you shouldn't. For moral support. You would have sent the wrong message. Lockhart. He's had a hard-on for us ever since Abu Ghraib. He'll go right after her. Yeah, he will. What if she can't handle it? She can. But what if she can't? Either way. What's that supposed to mean? Only that her history of insubordination and mental illness might be more useful to us than a good performance in front of the select committee. Okay. I won't do that. I'll throw Carrie under the bus. And just jump up and down on her really hard. I'm serious. So am I. What do you see out there every morning when you come into work? That's right. Not a crane, not a jackhammer, not a hard hat in sight. Just one ugly ass hole in the ground. All right, Charlie. A few days ago, we released our introductory episode where we talked a little bit about what we liked about Homeland, uh, what we thought of the first few seasons of the show, and what we were uh, hoping to see in season three. Were you satisfied by Tin Man is Down? I was satisfied by Tin Man is Down. I've read a lot of reviews, and uh, most of them are pretty mixed uh, or lukewarm, but I liked what they did here. Um, It takes place two months after the uh, bombing at Langley. It's basically all of these characters coming to terms with how this attack and how uh, everyone's relationship to Brody is now coming down hard on them. I liked everything with Carrie a lot and Saul. I thought Saul in particular stole the stole the episode in just a few scenes. Well, it's Mandy Patinkin. That's what he does. And he still has the beard. <laughs> He does still have the beard. And while Brody is not in this episode, what I liked about this episode is that you feel that everything that these characters are going through is centered around what their relationship to Brody is and how 
his actions have affected them, and for the most part, all in negative ways. Um, you've got Carrie getting brutally, brutally investigated at a Senate meeting, and Congress is coming down hard on her. Uh, Saul is now in charge uh, after David Estes was killed off, and he's being forced to make some decisions that uh, he doesn't believe to be the best decisions, but he's being uh, pressured by uh, his new... Well, is it his new boss, or is it his partner? I don't believe it's his boss. It is uh, yeah. F. Murray Abraham's character, Dar Adal. Dar Adal, yes. Who I believe, as we learned, he, he only popped up briefly in season two, but I believe that he is he's some sort of black ops specialist. And the last time, if I recall, the last time we saw him in season two, he was at the Waffle House with uh, Saul, and from the conversation that he had with Saul, we can tell this is a guy who doesn't feel a lot of guilt. I, I believe he says something to Saul along the line, or asks Saul, are you still afraid to get your hands dirty? And it's clear that uh, this guy is a lot more cutthroat and not as... Uh, morally conscious as Saul is, and I've read a lot of complaints that um, people don't really care about uh, Brody's family. They wish that Brody's family was just off the show. I think if they just kicked Brody's family off the show, that would be uh, a huge cop-out, and while, you know, their drama might be more subplot material, it is a little less centered on the main themes of the show. I like that we spent time with Brody's family and that Dana was very troubled by all of this, and she's attempted suicide, and she just gets out of um, a psychiatric ward. Once again, Brody isn't in this episode, but it's all about how Brody's actions are now affecting everyone, and uh, they these actions have consequences, and I liked the fact that these characters are still around. A lot of people don't really care about Dana or Jessica or Chris, but I find their domestic drama to be just as uh, engrossing as Carrie's and Brody's, so, and Saul's. Well, I gotta be honest with you, Charlie, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that they're again focusing on Dana so far in this episode. I agreed with you um, in our introductory episode when you said that maybe they should give Chris a little bit more time, but with that aside... I do think that it is important to keep showing what Brody's family is going through because he is a main character on the show, and this season premiere, it's in many ways, it, it's an episode about absence. It's an, it's an episode about trauma and what has happened and this, this terrible bombing that occurred and how do you deal with it? How do you talk about it? Uh, Brody has disappeared. How do we go about making sense of this? You've got characters who are trying to hide information in the case of Carrie, they're, they're trying to cover up what exactly they knew and when they knew it. And you've got characters like Dana, who we learned tried to commit suicide in the aftermath of the bombing. That what has happened here and the fact that her father is now blamed for this attack, it has affected not only the country on a grand national scale, but it has affected individuals as mm -hmm. well, in a very profound way. So I, I agree with you. I think it's important to show the, the multiple ways in which it is affecting people. I will say, I think this premiere, it's not a very flashy premiere. It's not an action-packed premiere. It, if, if you're comparing it to the season one premiere or the season two premiere, it's kind of dull in that there's nothing really explosive that happens because the explosion already happened at the uh, end of uh, season two. So we're just, we're just seeing the aftermath of that now. And I think that that's okay. It'll be interesting to see if this is an indication of 
the tone and rhythm that Homeland's going to have over the course of this entire season. Because season two started out fast and stayed fast. Maybe season three is going to slow down. Yeah, and I, I, I like the fact that it slowed down because, as we mentioned in our uh, intro podcast, season two was so fast-paced, especially towards the end. And a lot of people complained that it got really loopy. I thought it was refreshing to kind of uh, take it slow here. I like the fact that we get to see how these characters have been coping with the uh, results of this attack in the past two months. And um, I don't really expect a season premiere to like blow me away in terms of uh, like how action-packed or fast-paced it can be. I, it, you know, I'm sh- the second season had a much flashier premiere, as did the first season. But I like the fact that they're kind of taking it slow. I, I did not expect Congress to come down on the CIA so hard, because I don't usually think that they're hard enough in real life sometimes. But uh, I like the fact that they went that route. I liked the fact that Carrie's now in this hearing, and secrets are slowly being unveiled for her. It makes a lot of sense for Congress to be suspicious of you know, the fact that they think that she hid Brody. And I think that it's interesting that they fe- uh, they're they kind of bringing Carrie back to the way she was in season one, where her bad habits seem to be resurfacing. She's drinking a lot. She's having one-night stands. Uh, one-night stands with people who now look like Brody, apparently. You know, she's got manic, uncontrolled thoughts. She doesn't really have a filter. She's not taking her lithium anymore. Uh, but I didn't get the sense that they were just, like, treading old water. Because Carrie's always been a character who has been very manic, and she never lets herself off the hook for certain things. It makes sense to me that Carrie would beat herself up over the fact that she missed this attack being set up, especially because, ironically, in season one, she stopped an attack from happening and got no credit for it whatsoever. I just feel like she's kind of back to that stage that she was in in the first season where she kind of talked about how uh, it was. it's referred to, it's never outright stated, that she missed something on 9-11 and feels responsible for it. And now her relationship with Brody has now, in her eyes, distracted her from her job and is the reason why 216 people are dead. Yeah, let's talk about some specifics and, and talk about Carrie a little bit, because this is a character who we've seen fall off the deep end before. Mm -hmm. We saw her in season one. We saw what happens when she doesn't take her medication. Now, to see her voluntarily return to that state because maybe she, uh, she feels like it'll help her be a better agent or it's out of guilt and maybe subconsciously she knows that it'll destroy her. I think that that is an interesting development. I just gotta tell you, Charlie, that scene in the restaurant where she shows up and starts yelling at Saul and Dara Dahl. Just a tiny bit awkward. Yeah, just a tiny bit. <laughs> just it's a teensy bit awkward. But I totally would buy that from her character. And mental illness doesn't go away. If if Carrie just wasn't mentally ill anymore, I wouldn't buy that. You know, like, I myself suffer from depression and anxiety, and I have for years and years, and... While I've certainly learned to deal with it better, it doesn't go away entirely. I like the fact that um, her mental illness still plays a crucial part to her character, and it could lead her astray again, because that's just the way that the brain works. Right. I think it's really interesting that someone is leaking information about Mm -hmm. her from the CIA. Someone's leaking it to the press, and she suspects Saul. He at first suspects Dara Dahl, 
who denies it. What do you think about this development, Charlie? Do you think Saul is the leak? I don't want to believe he's the leak, but I wouldn't put it... I, I'm, I'm not going to disclose that entirely. I think it's definitely possible. I hope it's not. But Carrie's prioritized by her love for Brody, and Saul is definitely more prioritized with getting back in touch with Mar. And I feel like both of them are making decisions that are hurting the other sides of their lives uh, because of it. He did betray her at the end of this episode, but at the same time, he's not lying, you know? Like, he did, she did disclose that information, and it is painful to watch as someone who loves both Carrie and Saul for Carrie to get stabbed in the back like that. Well, this is the second time she's been stabbed in the back like this. The first time came in season one from Brody, mm-hmm. when he revealed all of her secrets to the CIA. So it, it is painful that now she can't even trust Saul, her mentor, to stand up for her. There is a part of me that thinks maybe he is the leak, though, because they did not end season two on very good terms, and he was very angry that she was considering leaving the CIA to go be with Brody, and there was a lot of resentment there. So maybe Saul is taking it out on her. Maybe Saul is saying, you know what? You went with Brody. You helped him out. He turned out to potential to to possibly be a terrorist. This is what you deserve. Mm-hmm. And both characters are making decisions based around the people that they love. Uh, Saul with Mar, uh, Mira, Mira. Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I called her Mar. Um, <laughs> That's all right. But, but um, one of the best scenes of this episode to me was uh, he goes up to Mira and says, uh, we're not terrorists. I mean, we're not assassins. We're spies. You know, we wait for people to uh, do certain things and then we turn them against each other. And then she says, but yeah, that's what the other side does too. And you just can never make a decision. And he says, well, I'm waiting for the right choice to appear. And she kind of tries to come on to him and like say, Hey, we've been sleeping in the same in separate beds for months. Like she's subtly trying to get him to go to bed with her and he loves her to death. And he, he's just uh, indecisive and doesn't know what the right thing to do is because he's afraid of hurting her. And that is part of his motivation to uh, wipe out the six terrorists who he believes are possible uh, suspects for the Langley bombing. And I feel like Carrie's making a lot of decisions to protect Brody that are also hurting her. So they're both very, uh, they're both very haunted by trying to do what's best for the people that they love and not always right. making the right decisions when it comes to uh, how they deal with uh, the angst that they have for their significant others. Right. It's interesting to me that now Saul seems to be in a position of paralysis. He is having trouble making decisions. It seems like he's he's not used to being the one in charge that everyone is turning to, and, and suddenly he's having to make really important decisions that could have dramatic effects on, on, on national security and foreign policy. And Carrie is also a little bit paralyzed. I mean, this whole episode, in many ways, it's about people stuck, trying to deal with what has happened two months ago with this bombing, and unable to to, to really process it and move on. And oddly enough, it seems like Dana's the one who has the best philosophy, you know, one day at a time. Yeah. The suicidal teenager might be the most emotionally healthy of all of them at this point. (laughs) And um, I think that it's... Interesting that the writers are putting Saul in this position where he's having trouble making decisions and he's he's trying to determine what road the CIA is going to go down from now on. Because, as you mentioned, he doesn't like 
being an assassin. He doesn't like using force when espionage can perhaps be more efficient. That is one of the uh, the interesting debates that often comes up in foreign policy in real life. You know, how do you respond to an event like this? How do you respond to 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 national trauma? Do you react with force? Do you just try to take everyone out with your military might, or do you go for a more diplomatic or sneaky spy-like approach? So I think it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with that over the course of the season. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, at least while Brody's off screen, I I love Saul and Carrie's relationship, and I feel like it's going to get a lot, uh, things are going to get pretty heated from the way this episode seems to uh, imply that they are not on good terms. And even the shot in the second season, it's like the last shot of the finale. It's such a good shot when Saul is walking around the ashes uh, and the the total, uh, all the damage that the, and wreckage that the bomb has caused. And uh, Carrie appears and says Saul, and it's just a shot of his face. And you can tell that he's frustrated with her you can tell that the tension that he felt from his conflict, uh, his argument with her before the bomb went off is still there, but he's still happy to see her. And I feel like that's a lot of this season is going to be them kind of double crossing uh, one another for what they believe to be the right thing to do for the people that they love. And uh, I feel like it could destroy their relationship. I certainly hope it doesn't, but it could make for compelling television if it does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about the Brodies and let's talk about Dana in particular. She went away to rehab because she was suicidal. She's been in therapy for the past two months, but now she is back at home. That is intriguing to me because all of the characters need therapy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's actually gone out and gotten some, so hopefully she's not immediately going to turn around and try to kill herself again. I have to ask you, Charlie, were you happy to see our old friend, Sam Underwood, <laughs> from Dexter, season eight of Dexter? He played one of your favorite characters, I know, Zach Hamilton, and now he is back as Leo Karras, Dana's, I guess you could call her boyfriend, definitely her love interest, Yes, who is still back at the rehab center receiving therapy. That was one of those moments where I had to pause it and be like, no way. And I had to look <laughs> it up on IMDb and be like, that's insane. But uh, I mean, we don't really get to know much about his character. So far, better than Zach, because he seems like a nice guy. The thing that did bother me about Dana's subplot is I don't know what this topless photo thing is going on between them. And I know that teenagers do that a lot and, you know, sexting or whatever, and they message pictures of themselves to one another. Um, I didn't really know what that was about. I assume that because the Brody family has so much press surrounding them now that, like, somehow that might get leaked somehow. I don't know. Well, as we talked about in the introductory episode, as much as this show deals with themes, with pretty heavy themes of terrorism and foreign policy and betrayal, a lot of it is also just about that basic need for human connection and how people are are looking for comfort They're looking for someone to hold them and help them and tell them it's going to be okay. And Carrie found that in Brody. Jessica found it in Mike, who is strangely absent from this episode, which I thought was interesting. Me too. And now Dana, she's she's a teenager. She's, She's still learning about herself and her own sexuality. And 
in season two, she had a little thing with uh, with Finn, the vice president's son, and now it looks like she's going to start hooking up with uh, Leo, or at least sending him naked pictures. So that did not seem too out of the ordinary for me, because it's it, it's in keeping with the overall theme of the show, of just, just that search for connection. And it was nicely uh, juxtaposed, if I remember correctly, with this scene of Saul uh, not getting any from his wife. <laughs> yes, that's true. No, that's totally true. I didn't even put those two together. Um, it almost seemed like that's, I don't know, American Beauty-esque to me, like that scene in uh, American Beauty where Thora Birch takes her top off. But um, it did seem like I, I could understand, like, she's been through emotional hell. She's attempted suicide. She's had to open up with a lot of things, uh, about a lot of things that she probably didn't talk to anybody about in the first two seasons. And it's almost like Dana, I I assumed from what they were going through, like, is both physically and emotionally naked at this point. Right. And and there's a good chance that this guy, Leo, has been with her and, Mm -hmm. and, and seen her as she's been emotionally vulnerable. He's been in therapy with her. So he probably knows more about what she's going through than anyone in her family. So it will be interesting to see how that relationship develops over the course of the season because as as we talked about in our introductory episode, you know, Carrie and Brody were two damaged people that mm-hmm. were drawn to each other because of that. Now we may find uh, Dana in a similar situation. I, I mean, we don't know why Leo's in therapy, but we can assume that they're both damaged people. They're both broken. They both have traumatic things in their lives that they're trying to deal with so maybe that's what they have in common maybe that's what's gonna bring them together yeah i'm sure that homeland will do a better job of developing uh sam underwood's character than dexter did so (laughs) (laughs) well he was only in four episodes of dexter and one of them it was just a really brief appearance that didn't really matter much he's already according to imdb he's confirmed for four episodes of homeland so we'll get at least that much of him this time around. And even though he didn't get like any dialogue at all for the most part, he is immediately more likable because <laughs> he's not a sexist creep. Yeah, and he, and he looks different. He looks a little bit, I don't know if he's thinner or what, but uh, he, he looked different. It took me a, a while to realize yeah. that, it, that it was the same guy that played Zach Hamilton. Yeah, it, no, it was one of those double-take things for me where I was just like, is that really Zach from Dexter? Maybe we're going to find out what made Zach Zach. It's going to be a weird uh, <laughs> weird little uh, crossover. Homeland is the Dexter prequel. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how things work at Showtime, but I get the impression they like to work with the same people in, in mm-hmm. certain situations. I don't know if it's just coincidence that he popped up in both Dexter and Homeland, or if people at Showtime just really liked him. This episode was directed by Leslie Linka-Gladder, who has also worked on Dexter, and who also is directing an episode of Masters of Sex this season. Ah. So it seems like Showtime, in certain situations, if they find people that they like to work with, they will uh, they will put them on multiple shows, which is interesting. Huh. I can't think of any Showtime casting crossovers off the top of my head. In fact, the, the only thing that I can think of right now is how, like, they brought back Aaron Paul to Big Love after he became big on Breaking Bad, but that's AMC and HBO, so that doesn't relate. That, but they only brought him back because he got big off of Breaking Bad, and then they brought him back for Big Love just for that. But um, I mean, it's not unusual to see networks use the same directors. Oh, yeah. For different shows. I mean, we already talked about how Michael Cuesta used to work on Dexter, and now he works on 
homeland. It's not unusual for the network to have certain crew members that they like to work with. Uh, this may be the first time, I don't know, I, I haven't watched enough Showtime, I haven't seen Weeds, for example, but it's the first time I can think of where we've seen uh, an actor pop up on two shows on the same network, particularly in such a short amount of time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I can't think of any crossovers uh, from the Showtime series I've seen. I haven't seen a whole lot of them. I've seen Weeds, I've seen Dexter, I'm now watching Homeland. I saw a few episodes of Shameless. I can't think of any casting crossovers, but I do find it to be interesting that Michael Cuesta went to go work for Homeland, and after he left uh, Dexter, Dexter became increasingly worse, (laughs) and Homeland was just a soaring success. So, yeah. I'm sure that's just a coincidence, Charles. (laughs) Oh, I I can't believe I forgot this. Uh, Mandy Patinkin was on Dead Like Me which was a Showtime Oh, series. you're right. I completely forgot about that. That was a really good show. I really yeah. liked Dead Like Me. That was a long time ago, too. Wasn't Dead Like Me in 2003 or something? Yeah, 2003, 2004. So, yeah, maybe Showtime is one of those networks that if they find an actor they like working with or or, or certainly directors they like working with, they will, uh, they will try to keep working with them in the future. But let's move on to, to some other things in this episode. We could talk about the rest of the Brodies, I guess, because Chris is still kind of off to the side. Right. And there, I mean, there, there was an interesting scene where Dana overhears Jessica talking with her mother about Dana and the proper way to treat her and how seriously to take her suicide. And that was really interesting to me. It was really interesting to me, too, because, you know, Dana's suicide attempt happened off screen and... We don't know if it was a cry for help or if she was really trying to kill herself, but a lot of people say that uh, when people attempt suicide but don't succeed, people usually say it's a cry for help. She wasn't really trying to kill herself because scientifically your body doesn't want to die. Your body wants to keep living and it's just a mental illness and it's like that's more of a cry for help than you actually trying to kill yourself, but... It's interesting to me because we didn't see that. That's all off screen. Right, but uh, but I mean, her doctor seemed pretty convinced, like, hey, this is a more serious case than we usually see because she wasn't on any other substances. Mm-hmm. She seemed completely aware of what she was doing. So, yeah, I, I got the impression it was definitely a close call. Yeah, exactly. And even if it was a cry for help and it wasn't her and it wasn't a total attempt to kill herself, to have someone say it was a cry for help when you've attempted suicide and you overhear that, it really hurts because anyone who's going through that sort of stuff is confused and you know, you're not sure if you really want to die, you just want the pain to go away. So I'm sure that's going to impact Dana really badly in the next few episodes. Well, it's almost like an insult, <laughs> kind of like, well, you can't even do that right. You weren't even committed to that. Oh yeah, it's it's <laughs> total insult. It's it's so painful to hear because like either A, you did want to kill yourself and you failed and you're not doing it right, or B, she's just looking for attention and that's the only way you could get at it. I empathize with Jessica this uh, episode, but she did annoy me a little bit, more than she's annoyed me in a long time. It's understandable that Jessica is concerned about her finances and how much of it will be uh, going towards, you know, Dana's visit to a psychiatric hospital and therapy and treatment. 
And I empathize with her because she was getting government funding for the first two seasons. And now she's learning to deal with the lack of uh, money. And she's it's gotten to the point where her social reputation's destroyed. She's been uh, shunned from her own church. At the same time, her daughter tried to kill herself. And it's like all she can think about. And she's more concerned with how much it's going to cost to fix her than it is than the fact that her daughter tried to kill herself. She wasn't very loving towards Dana in this episode, I thought. I thought it was just more of her being frustrated for the fact that she's got a screwed up child and that she's going to have to pay for it. And I found that to be pretty painful. Well, again, it just goes back to the fact that there was a huge bomb dropped on this family, both literally in the case of Langley and and, and metaphorically here with Brody's uh, family, because just finding out that your husband is potentially a terrorist who killed over 200 people... I imagine that just immediately shifts your focus in unexpected ways. And suddenly, things that normally you wouldn't worry about, you worry about a lot. Um, And especially since we don't see Mike around in this episode, we don't know where he is and why he isn't helping the Brodies out. I can understand why Jessica would be stressed, and I don't think that's necessarily... I don't think that means that she doesn't love her daughter. I I think the the bigger question is whether Dana feels like it means she's not concerned. I would not be surprised if Dana just ends up turning to her boyfriend, Leo, for more and more support if she doesn't feel like she's getting it from home, which could be interesting. Mm -hmm. Because, again, it's that question of what happens when two damaged people become the most important thing in each other's lives. Mm-hmm. Are these damaged people trustworthy? Will they be able to have satisfying normal relationships or are they just incompatible mm-hmm. because they're too damaged? I also found it to be interesting that when they stated that she attempted suicide, she was completely sober because we've seen Dana smoking pot in several episodes. And while in season two, part of the reason she dumps her current boyfriend to go out with Finn is because all he wants to do is get stoned. I was actually kind of refreshingly surprised by the fact that when finding out her dad wasn't a, was a terrorist, she didn't just, you know, take a bottle of aspirin with a bottle of vodka, or she didn't go smoke pot uh, and, you know, do stupid, careless, reckless things. I found that to be interesting, especially considering that it seems now uh, Carrie's becoming more dependent on alcohol and one-night stands and not even taking her medication. So I feel like that contrast is interesting to me. Oh, definitely. Definitely. The last thing I want to talk about, I don't have a whole lot to say except to point out that we have a new antagonist. Uh, his name is Senator Andrew Lockhart. He's played by Tracy Letts, who is not only a great actor, he's a fantastic playwright. I, I, I've had the opportunity to interview him once. Oh, really? Yes. That's uh, amazing. Uh, it was a few years ago. He wrote the play that the movie Killer Joe is based on. A terrific movie. And uh, if, I, if I'm if i correct, he also wrote Bug, and which was also adapted by William Friedkin into a motion picture. And then didn't he write August Osage County, which yes. is like this big Oscar contender that's coming out in like November? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a play that is being adapted into a Oscar contender for... Uh, this year's big holiday movie. Yes, yes. He's a fantastic writer, and I had no idea that he was also an actor. And then when I realized that that was him, I was like, okay, Tracy Letts, you're uh, not bad. He comes across as very sinister and cold. Oh, yeah. 
He's very intimidating in those briefings. I didn't know he was an actor either until you just pointed it out. I knew that we were going to see Tracy Letts in this season, but I didn't know that was him. I guess I should have looked that up before we started recording. But uh, (laughs) yeah, at the same time, he's an antagonist. And yet, even though we don't know much about him, you totally understand why he would be really cold towards Carrie and why he would be suspicious that she would sneak him out. And you definitely understand his frustration if she's lying about this sort of stuff after he's been framed like that, like what going back to what you said in the introductory podcast about this show, which is what makes it so great is there's no, everyone's gray. There's no black or white characters, even this antagonist who, you know, we love Carrie and we want her to get away with this, but it makes total sense why Congress would be grilling her on this. Right. If this was real life, we would be rooting for Senator Andrew Lockhart. We'd be like, oh. yes, griller, find someone to blame, find someone to pin this all on, and make them pay. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I love about it, is even though I'm going, oh, God, this guy's such a jerk, I have to remind myself, well, no, he's doing his job. If I was in that situation and I didn't see the first two seasons of Homeland and just had this Carrie Matheson woman come in and uh, hear from all sorts of people that she possibly stuck, snuck Brody out, who, from what I've heard, uh, is responsible for this terrorist bombing, I'd be on her case, <laughs> like, in a heartbeat. Right, and I think it's really interesting that after we watch Saul go through this struggle to decide what approach to take, should, should we bomb these targets or should we wait, and he decides to bomb these six targets because the CIA needs a win and (laughs) Senator Andrew Lockhart just sees right through it and is like, come on, the timing of this is awfully suspicious these aren't super high level guys, Yeah, you gotta do better than that. And he was pressured the entire time by, um... Dara Dahl? Yeah, he gets pressured by him like, to do this immediately and uh, it's an impulsive decision that he makes, uh, partially due to the angst he feels from the conversation that he had with uh, Mira the night before And that's all really interesting, too, is like, you know, when the people who we love are falling away from us, what can we do to try and improve our image, even in ways that don't actually affect that person that we love, but we think that we need to improve this part of ourselves. But I uh, I do want to talk uh, about Quinn, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to... Thanks thanks for reminding me. We do need to talk about Quinn, because we did talk about him in our introductory episode. I'm glad that he's still around. I think it's interesting that the, the opening shot and the opening scene of this season is him making a bomb. It'll be interesting to see if there's a reference or a callback to that later on in the season. We got to see Quinn in action. He's good at what he does. Well, for the most part... No, he is good at what he does. He's good at what he does, but he did shoot that kid. I mean, he, obviously he didn't know that it was a kid, but he did his job. He he, he saw someone there with a flashlight. He uh, took him out. I mean, what was he supposed to do? Oh, it's totally understandable. It was just really heartbreaking because at first he could have taken that guy out because he was right next to him in the other lane on his motorcycle, and he could have done that, but... After he saw that there was a kid there, he didn't want to. And so the fact that he's trying to be careful, and then unfortunately he's not careful enough, I found to be really tragic. Right. It, it's it's the, the horrible tragedy of war that no matter how careful you are, innocent people are going to die. So how do you deal with that? And, and, and how do you approach that? Do you keep trying to avoid it as much as possible? Or do you just sort of embrace that that's the situation and that's the nature of war? And, and and just go with it. 
it's going to be interesting to see how that affects him because we don't know a whole lot about Quinn. He does seem like the very professional guy. He seems like he can certainly be very cold and just go take out a bunch of people and, and kill them. But we have seen him have a conscience. And in season two, he did refuse to kill Brody. Mm-hmm. because of his emotions and his feelings. So will killing this kid affect him at all? It'll be interesting to see if that has any effect or if he just goes back to business as usual. I'm pretty sure he'll attempt to go back to business as usual, but then have like flashbacks to this. And I, I feel like this is going to haunt him for a while. I feel like he's going to be beating himself up over this just as Carrie's beating herself up over not being able to stop the attack. Because a lot of it's also how we deal with the guilt of war and the, you know the consequences of our actions. And that we do certain things impulsively to the point where we don't know what the right thing to do is. And I feel like a lot of characters are overwhelmed with guilt to the point where it's going to be affecting the decisions they make uh, throughout this entire season. And I'm sure there are parts of the guilt that they feel that will motivate them, that will... Uh, drive him down a good path. And then there are definitely going to be moments, especially for Carrie, where these feelings of guilt will result in impulsive mistakes uh, that will only further their guilt. Right. Everyone's beating themselves up about something. I have a feeling Jessica is, whether we fully realize it or not, she blames herself for Dana's suicide attempt and and or at least the doctor implies that she should blame herself <laughs> to a yeah. certain extent he's kind of like hey your kids in a stressful environment stressful situation you need to be there and and tackle this head-on so yeah everyone is blaming themselves and maybe that's part of the reason why jessica's so seemingly concerned with the money is that she's trying to put it all on the money and not deal with the fact that she wasn't there when her daughter attempted suicide. Right. Because she's been, for the most part, a pretty good mom, at least from what we've seen up until now. Yeah, I agree. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Tin Man is Down? A lot of people are saying, who cares about Chris? Is that kid being played by a different actor every season? Are they doing the Bobby Draper thing from Mad Men where they just reassign him uh, stuff? I would like to see a little more of him. I understand that he's 12 or 13 now, and, you know, 12 or 13, you're just going into, like, middle school, and uh, you're confused, and you're afraid to show vulnerability or sadness or anything like that because you're going from... You're maturing from being a kid to, you know, an adolescent. And I feel like Chris is bottling up a lot of stuff inside that he doesn't want to share yet. And I hope that they allow for his character to get a few moments because he's mostly there just to uh, interact with the rest of the Brody family. And uh, I feel like there could be a lot fleshed out. I agree. I, I fully agree with you. All right. Well, I think that will wrap it up for this episode of The Briefing Room. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at briefingroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, and our latest podcast all about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast. Charlie, where can people find you online? Uh, well, you can listen to me and Andrew uh, discuss the eighth and final season of Dexter by subscribing to Avenging Angels on iTunes or finding it on filmgeekradio.com. You can also find the articles that I've written for your magazine, Emerson, at Issue. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash your mag Emerson. And you can follow me on Twitter at CTNash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H 91. 
You can find some of my writing at MovieMezzanine.com and Pathios.com. I write about movies over at Movie Mezzanine and TV at Pathios on the blog called Cinema Meditations. So if you're interested in what I thought of other shows like Breaking Bad or uh, Masters of Sex, which comes on right after Homeland, head over there and, and check those out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And so far, so good. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!